Hi there, Jeremy Hutchings here. Before we get started, I want to ask you a question. Are you getting the results you want from the effort you put into your farm business? Would you like to thrive rather than just survive? If you're looking to improve your skills as a farm business owner and thrive, then you're not going to want to miss the next Top Producers Workshop. The thing that sets the best business owners and the top 20% of farmers apart from the pack is that they all spend time working strategically on their business. If you know you need to spend more time on your business rather than in it, but you don't know where to start, then the Top Producers Workshop will be perfect for you. Join me and the Farm Owners Academy team, as well as a host of other like-minded farm business owners, to spend two incredible days working on your business. This could be the most valuable investment you make this year. The first step in creating your freedom farm starts now, but hurry. These events normally sell out months in advance. Head over to farmownersacademy.com forward slash events. That's farmownersacademy.com forward slash events for more details. Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day team, welcome again to Profitable Farmer. Um, I don't want to apologise for this, but the reflection as we lead into 2024, it's going to continue. Two podcasts ago, I reflected on what is our purpose in life. I hope that was of interest. And then to have a chance to interview with Anna Mears in the last podcast, you know, and reflect on just how bloody lucky are we really to be in Australia and, you know, what amazing people Australia and this great country gets to turn out. I was reflecting further. And so joining the dots, I actually thought about the fact that Terry Tran, um, our investment advisor um, from Freedom Trader, is one of the only refugees or recent refugees to Australia that I know. And so I've actually asked Terry to come and join me again for a bit more of an extension on that theme, just to explore a couple of concepts that I hope are of real value to you. Terry, it's always Awesome to have you part of Profitable Farmer and tracking with us at Farm Owners Academy. And thank you for all the support you extend to so many of our farmers who are getting help from you and Freedom Trader around their off-farm investing. First question for you, Terry. Yes. How bloody lucky are we? You know, it's easy for me to say, God, we're lucky to live in Australia. But as someone who has grown up outside of Australia and come to Australia at a young age. Um, when you look at the country that we're lucky enough to live in, how does it compare and how lucky are we? And, and thank you for having me, uh, Jeremy. Uh, there is no comparison. Like I've obviously born in Vietnam, but raised here. And this is by far, and I've traveled the globe, and this is by far the best country on the planet that we can live in, in terms of everything that we provided, from healthcare to education to the, even the opportunities. Because even now, flying back to where I was born in Vietnam, and yes, that country has changed a lot in terms of 
you know, seeing the uh, a lot of industries now develop there because, uh, you know, the Nikes, the Samsungs, they're opening factories there, et cetera, moving away from China. But then seeing them even even from where it used to be and it and now, yes, it has improved, but even comparing that, there is no comparison. And recently I just came back from Bali and, you know, toiling through the, the rice paddies, taking photos of the locals and seeing how they live. And uh, I was lucky enough to, one of the local families, to ask me to actually be part of that, you know, be part of the farming and actually help on the rice paddies. And I did that for, you know, for a couple of hours. And, geez, it was bloody hard work. Very hot and just, like, smacking those those bushels against the, against the uh, uh, that little, the basket and just getting all those grains out. And that was all manual labor. They, they had no machinery. So I know even Aussie farms, we've got machinery. They, they do not. They literally just use their hands and just manual labor work. So we are very, very lucky. I remember, Terry, I was 18 when I first went overseas to go and coach sport at a school in England. Um, had never been out of Australia. And a mate of mine jumped on the plane after harvest and we landed in Hong Kong to stay with a friend of a friend's there. Yeah. And I think I worked out that um, in Hong Kong, there's 20,000 people to where we put one sheep. Um, and I just distinctly remember just my overwhelm arriving into the hustle and bustle of Hong Kong. Um, but I, I think about just the, the millions of kids growing up in high-rise apartments and, you know, the intensity of their reality and, you know, their time on screens and those things, perhaps compared to, I guess, the space and the relative freedom and the joys that our kids get to enjoy as they come through growing up on farms and in regional and rural settings um i take your point i just think we are we are just on so many levels our super structures our healthcare, our education system um the affluence that we all get to enjoy um the freedom that we get to have it is it is pretty incredible isn't it compared to other countries no definitely and uh you know if, if children are sort of complaining about you know they don't get this or they don't get that i, I always say one solution, send them to South Africa and literally see how they, their kids, and, and I've seen it firsthand, their kids work uh, two hours to school by mm. foot. And if they're lucky enough, there might be a ute that can pick them up and they're, they're all bundled into maybe 10, 15 of them. And I've seen that too, that they get that lift to the school. And when they come back, a lot of them still come back by foot and they even have to carry water back to the household as well on their, yeah. on sort of on their heads and their shoulders. So, you know, kids really shouldn't be complaining. These kids have smiley faces because they get to get to school, even though they have to walk two hours one way just to get to school. I was inspired by a mate of mine who's an accountant in Bendigo. Dino, if you're listening to this, mate, um, thank you for this. But he took his kids over to Africa um, when they were 7, 9 and 11. And um, they spent six weeks in a little village in Africa. And um, I meet his kids now. 10 or 15 years later, and I can't help but think that that had a really pivotal effect on those kids, just helping them get a real appreciation for how so many in this world live. Um, Jane and I got to go to Fiji last year, and we were in a little resort next to a village, and we got to know the villagers so so intimately. About 45 of those kids put some clothes and shoes in their school books into a little um, plastic tub, like the chlorine buckets that we use for chlorine for our swimming pools. Mm. And on Monday morning, that's their suitcase. And they get trucked off to the other end of the island to go to primary school, age five through to 12. Um, barefooted t-shirts, singlets, and off to school for the week. So they're being taken away from their mums and dads um, 
from age five and they're back home on a Friday night for the weekend. But, you know, don't have suitcases, don't have sneakers, don't have smartphones or any of that. But they were just the happiest and most beautiful people ever. Um, and it was wonderful for our kids just to get to know these villages and get to know these kids. And um, yeah, it's so healthy, isn't it, that, that at an early age and for all of us that we have and get to keep that perspective around just how fortunate we are. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that is actually very important that, um, you know, kids are not just sheltered. They actually get to see the world or, or see a, a different perspective and then they get their own perspective of life as well and how lucky they sh- they are and get that that sort of appreciation of what they have already. Sarah, you'd probably see some um, adults in their latter careers. They might come to you in financial hardship or feeling some financial duress or Maybe they're living in Sydney as pilots and they're, you know, spending more than they're earning or whatever, like so many do. It seems to be part of our psychology or conditioning. Um, equally, I think we see a lot of farmers that are going through a tight season or an adjustment in commodity prices or, shit, we've just had 10 interest rate rises and we weren't expecting them or whatever it is. Um, and we see adults in their mid and later lives um, sort of scared and um, challenged and worrying about money and about what what do you say to them, um, those people who might have lost that perspective, if you like, and be in a moment as an adult where they're finding real financial duress and, and relative hardship? I think firstly is like for sure, like what you said, a lot of uh, people sometimes do spend more than they own. And I think the first thing they, they needed to take account of is, uh, where they are in life, uh, you know, what they're spending. Is it really making them truly happy or not, uh, for example? Uh, knowing what, you know, they, the, the couple of podcasts that you mentioned earlier about, you know, their, I guess, their their purpose in life, like what is the, what is it that they really want that makes them happy? And then from there, potentially cut back on sort of certain things that they don't have to do uh, and, and not just do it because their peers or people around them do it, so to speak, and they're, they're spending, doesn't mean, you know, uh, someone gets a jet ski or, or a boat, you need to get one, keeping up with the Joneses. They don't need, someone does not need to do that. And then from there, it takes a snapshot of, you know, have that responsibility and taking that snapshot of knowing exactly where they are, what they could cut back on, and then sort of almost like do a reset of their life and then begin. It's never too late because everybody still has time. You know, just get started, like re gets reset and then get started again, as in, you know, what savings plan could I put away? What Even if it's very minimal, it doesn't matter because in the end, it's just, it's just creating that routine and that habit. And when that habit grows into, you know, when you see something work, you're not just going to keep going at that small rate. You will naturally go, oh, wow, this does work. I want more uh, of, of more of that same feeling. So then they'll go from whether it's $50 a week or, or $100 a month, it doesn't matter. Then they'll go, yep, it's, it's working. I'm going to find even more ways, either work a bit harder, some overtime here and there, but then get that, say, investment to even work even harder for them as well mm. and then have that get going. And when they when that happens, it's just compounding, or almost like a little snowflake rolling down the, um, the hill. And to your point, Terry, and we touched on this before this podcast, um, so many people say that they just don't have the time or the money to start investing off farm or outside of their day job. Yeah. Um, 
we also know, I think, deep down that the best time to plant a tree is now or mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I love that concept and I think it's been described to me by a mentor as Parkinson's law that says that our spending rises to our level of earning, yep. that when we, we get a pay rise or we have a flush year in, in farming or whatever it is, that there's always stuff to spend our money on. Yeah. Um, would you mind just speaking? I'll, I'll go back a step. What I, what I reflect on, and I like the metaphor of um, a rose bush, that if, if you let a rose bush grow and you don't prune it regularly, it grows into a mess. Um, I sort of feel like that as we as our income increases or as our earning increases left unchecked, then our ability to spend what we make just grows and becomes a bit of a mess. Yeah. I love that concept of once a year or every other year, prune hard like we do a rose bush. Mm. And I think it's really important to review every single cost, personal business and other, and, and go really hard to cut deeply and prune hard so that we can put a wedge in there and find money, surplus cash flow to be able to allocate to the planting of the tree and to investing. Would you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's uh, what you said is correct. It's uh, both money and time. So people say, oh, I don't have enough time. You know, but BS, like really watch watch half an hour less of a, of a TV show or something or or that 20 minutes, 30 minutes, that will change your life. Like, why would you not do it? Like, it's just, if someone really doesn't want to do it, then so be it. Uh, but why would you not, if you know that the the result will be that down a track? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, would you rather work, you know, on an hourly rate, whatever you're making here, versus down a track when it compounds and you realize, oh, that hourly, the hourly rate down a track, you, you don't see it now, but down a track, that hourly rate becomes thousands per hour, literally. Because every little tiny decision you make on pruning that portfolio, uh, which I, I do every quarter, I prune the portfolio as well. So I clean out what shouldn't be in there. So I'm always cleaning out it's like, okay, this company's gone overvalued, we should sell down, or that company's no longer doing as, as well as I, sh- I thought it would, prune it away, and then that reallocate that money to somebody to somewhere else, which can make a much higher return. So that pruning is always happening at least every quarter. Um, and would I find a time to do it? Of course I would, because if I prune out that rubbish, that opportunity cost of not doing it is huge. Mm-hmm. So now every time I make that one decision uh, is worth tens of thousands per decision. So why would you not do it? Uh, so I think, you know, for someone just to take responsibility that, it, you know, firstly, know exactly what is it you want. Do you want to keep on working as hard as you want that, that you already are? Or um, sit back and realize, yeah, you can't. And, and this is what I, when I speak to a lot of farmers, you know, they can't, they already have sort of maxed out on their, on their labor. They can't work even harder anymore. So why continue doing that? And one, we all get older. One can only do so much hard work until you sort of your body gives up. And eventually you'll have to go the other, the other route anyway. So let's do it young when you're still capable and young. Uh, work, yeah, work bloody hard, continue on, but make the most out of that money that you are making and get the best ROI, return on the investment or in return, return to the capital that you've got to make the most out of it. And a lot of farmers, I think it's just so, so used to, oh, um, I'll just draw, as like you said uh, earlier too, Jeremy, uh, previous call, you know, a lot of farmers draw such a small salary just to make ends meet. Uh, yet they've got this massive asset base, but why why do that? Why not enjoy life as you're making the money so then you're more inspired to keep on wanting to make more too and, and not find this sort of living life a, a chore or a bore, so to speak? 
speaking to your point, I feel like we've almost got three rose bushes that we need to prune. To your point, it's the time rose bush. Yeah. We've got to work out where we're wasting our time and look to cut those off so that we can focus our energy and efforts on high value tasks like CEO level thinking, analysis, and investing. Absolutely. Then we've got our spending rose bush, which is personal and business spending. Where can we prune so that we can? free up funds for investing. And then to your comment, when you do start investing, then it's important to be actively pruning the investment rosebush as well, isn't it? So that yeah, all, three, all three of those get to not become a mess and become you know, beautiful and as we want them over time. Yeah, correct. And uh, if you do all those three pruning, over time, what's going to happen is that you, know, you don't want to spend. The, you Really, to me, I think the mindset needs to be shifted where we don't spend the money that we work hard on. We spend the money that uh, the the portfolio that we've grown gives us, passive mm-hmm. income, in other words. So if we can get the a portfolio to a certain level, and everybody's different, everybody's passive income requirement is different depending on you know how big their family, where they live, et cetera, what they want in life. But if you can spend that time to, or, and that pruning that, that, you know, those rose bushes to get to that, that level, then the passive income eventually is going to throw off so enough income that you are literally free. There is no need. You could step back from the hard labor, the hard work that you already do because it never runs out because that you're not spending principal anymore. You're spending, you're spending, you're not spending that, that initial principal capital you've put in. You, you are only spending the interest or the dividends that it's throwing off. And that never, that doesn't stop. That just keeps on going. Mm. And um, yeah, and toys and things should be bought from that instead. I'd like to come, like to unpack this a bit, um, Terry. I think it's such a an important reflection and comment. We talk about the entrepreneur ladder, and I might just sort of speak to that so we can build this mm. as we go. But so many people, when we're employees, we trade time for money, mm. and we spend what we make. Um, when we go to the next level of the entrepreneur ladder and become a business owner, um, we should get to a point where the business works and generates a profit for us um, that should allow us to live at that next level. The next level up, and I think this is what you're talking about, is when we have a business that generates profits where we can invest those profits and then live off the dividends of the investments. Correct. And and holidays and even our salary and our toys and all those things are bought off the dividends of the investments we're making from the profits we're getting from our farms. Yes. Is that what you're alluding to there? Yes, exactly. So make max ma- making the most out of the profits that you're able to earn from the farm uh, and I think a lot of farmers will just go, oh okay, I've got, got this I've got I've had a bumper year. And let's now think of how do I expand the farm even further? So it's always that thinking, but really have a think about, it's more important, I think, to think about the ROI of that allocation. Is that going to give you the best return on, on and the outcome that you want? Is it just constantly expanding for the sake of expanding, uh, buying a new tractor, et cetera? Is it really going to make a, a, a huge difference? If it does, please do so, because mm-hmm. then that's a great investment if you're you know, being able to take, you know, uh, automate some of the processes and that saves you time to do something else that's more even higher value, then do so. But don't do it just for the sake of doing it and not thinking about it because then that money, if it went somewhere else, is it's an opportunity cost that it could actually generate passive income 
as well. So maximizing the profits you have and really thinking hard of, oh, every time you make a dollar, where could it go to maximize my life and maximize uh, the, I guess, the profits on that profit is what I'm saying. So opportunity cost is not something that I think everyone understands. And you just mentioned that. I'd love to pick up on it. We talk about the fact that capital should flow where it gets its highest value or its highest return. Yeah. So to your point, it might be that when you look across all your allocations of capital, that that getting a faster, brighter, shinier tractor or header might be it, or you know, backing yourself to take on a lease or an expansion step might be it. But I think so often farmers make those on-farm expansion steps without an appreciation that if they're going to throw a hundred grand at that, that there is an opportunity cost of six or eight or ten or twelve percent. And I don't think they necessarily weigh up the on-farm decision versus the option just to persist with what they have and think about allocating their capital in another way. Terry, could you just explain opportunity cost as you see it so that you know, we do sort of encourage those listening to think about every investment decision on farm relative to the opportunity cost? Sure. And, and I think uh, I want to use an example because one example just showed up in my mind when you, when you said that, Jeremy, where, you know, uh, there's this couple, it was actually um, a farmer's wife that I had a chat with, a one-on-one with, and she was a bit frustrated. And what ended up happening was uh, her husband does work um, in mining as well. Uh, so off-farm, making off-farm income, and quite a lot of it, surprisingly, tw- uh, between twenty and 30000 a month, which is quite a lot um, in the, I guess, the farming community. And what he's done is literally for the last eight years, every twenty or 30000 30, a month that he's worked so hard on, on, the, on the mines, he's literally been just putting it back into the farm. But yet eight years later, there is, has been nothing to show for it. And yet if I, and I, I just did a compounding table on, uh, on that amount. And I said to just on a very basic seven to 10%, not even going 15, for example, per annum. And that, that money would have easily generated between, uh, I think it was five to 7 million, like in, in a, a portfolio over eight, the eight year period, uh, that she's seen nothing out of. And yet now they're still living like they were eight years ago. And that's why she was actually getting quite frustrated that is this the life that she wants to lead? Uh, she never came from a farm. She was actually a, a re, uh, uh, she didn't come from a city. She was, uh, grew up in the, in the country, but not a farmer, but then ended up uh, marrying a farmer and had a, a very, I guess, honest chat with me. And that's what ended up happening. And I was just trying to, you know, let her know that there is an alternative as well. And yeah, and, and, and I see that in a lot of farmers. It's that they, there's no thought of what's that return on investment if you make versus a return on investment somewhere else off farm. That ultimately, what is it that they wanted? Was it to expand the farm for the sake of expanding farm or was it to grow a farm enough for it to be self-sustaining um, uh, and, you know, reaping the profits down a track? But they never really had a, a clue. There was no real plan. It was just expansion because they see other farmers expanding, so they just do it. So mm. Yeah. But that that realisation of opportunity costs is quite huge, especially when someone's, you know, ploughing that much on a monthly basis. Yep. I think it's a, a really important point. And just, just to be accurate with it, do you think 8% is a reasonable figure to think about when we think about opportunity costs? Sure. That, that's sort of the minimum, I, I think, because you could easily put your money in a, um, 
a passive income fund, uh, like an ETF, exchange traded fund, or index fund, and that would probably in the long run six between six and eight percent. So let's say seven percent, mm. but then actively manage it, take it over ten percent, and that's going to be a huge difference. It might seem like it's only one or one to three percent, but that three percent compounded over time is not is not three you know uh, what a third more down a track. It's more than double to triple down a track. And if you take it down, say, say by an extra or another couple more percentage down, say 12, now it's probably 10 to 20 times the difference in 20 years' time. So that compounding effect makes a huge difference. And the great thing too is unlike expansion with farming, where a lot of farmers, they, they can't afford to just go out there and buy, you know, buy another land because they've got capital. They've got a lot of equity. So they you usually... Uh, which is what I've seen time and time again, is borrow against the equity, take on even more debt. So it's just constantly more expansion, more debt, more expansion, more debt, more interest cost. And in low interest rate environments that we had pre the last 18 months, it's fine. When the cost of capital is like 2%. But now when an average cost is like 6 7 8% on interest loans on farming, it's expensive. So then the return on, on investment or return on capital is now very important because if you can't make 6 or 7% and you're paying 6 or 7%, what are you doing it for? It's mm. literally you're you're just breaking even just on pure that, ex- excluding all the other costs of running a farm, which of course is quite substantial as well. Yeah, yeah. So Terry, I think um, on farmers listening, the benchmarking that we do, best practice farms can achieve twenty five to thirty percent profit um, on income mm. as a sort of consistent long term average. So when farms are profitable, yeah. And operating at that level, um, and that's after paying the owners a salary, then taking on debt to buy some more country. Yes. Um, the cost of debt can it, it can be achievable. Yeah. I think the benefit too there is that there is that capital appreciation on the land of of long term average is six percent per year. Yes. So I think I think for a really high performing family farm or a high performing farm. There is the justification to to use expanding farmland as a wealth creation strategy, yeah. um, but I just think so many of us are doing it, and probably on a more simplistic level, the the faster chaser bin and the more modern tractor and the bright and shiny truck to take the grain to the silo. I think yeah. people are making those sorts of decisions to upgrade their plant and all of that without that consideration for, well, the alternative is is that I just persist with the truck or the tractor or the chaser bin that I've got, mm. pay it off so I'm not paying debt on that and let it run and then allocate that 50 or that 100 or that 200 grand toward off-farm investments that, as you say, can earn 12 15% and compound. I, I yeah. just think it is so easy for us to go and, you know, just throw it capital and constantly reinvest profits back into the farm without creating that wedge and actively and early looking to invest elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. because I was going to uh, actually, uh, it's good, good at least you mentioned towards the end, Jeremy, about, you know, the off-farm because I was going to challenge that because, you know, the the, the, the other parties, you know, as, as you expand the farm, of course you take on board debt and even if you can afford it, what, what, why not expand off-farm which diversifies away the risk, but then also at the same time, you're creating now a liquid portfolio. And when I say liquid, it means that you you can expand the farm, but if you need to sell, let's say you need emergency funding, you can't sell farmland 
at an instant. You'll take a lot of months by the time it's settled. Uh, obviously, you have to wait for the right time. But a liquid portfolio, you haven't expanded with debt. It's just liquid. So what that means is uh, if you need emergency funding, i.e., let's say you've got 200 grand now and a tractor breaks down and you need 20, 30 grand to replace it, fix it, whatever, you can literally liquidate a portion of whatever portfolio you require and the money's in your account within two days. Mm-hmm. That is how, how that's how flexible that capital actually is as well. So it's, it's one, it's um, getting the high return, but two, diversifying the, the away the risk as well from on-farm, and then three, being liquid. So then you you truly free, feel free because a lot of my assets, um, in the old days, I used to believe in the ass, you know, creating, um, buying investment properties and, and they're hard assets. But then what, what I came to realize was that I remember having one one investment property where uh, a tenant just didn't pay rent for six months, had to take them to court, et cetera, and eventually we won. But that was such a hard a hard um, experience to go through because cash flow dried up. And if you've got one is fine, but if you've got two or three others going through the same thing, if one all it took was just one more tenant saying, for example, not paying the rent, then I'd, I'd be screwed. So I'd, then I realized, oh, this is like almost like a domino effect. And then the other thing too is the more debt I take on, the more I needed to work to ensure that one, I get the negative gearing um, to make it work because it's all about negative gearing at the time, depreciation, et cetera. And then two, was I really free? I wasn't. I was working for the banks. Did I really own those assets? No, the banks own me. So the moment I don't pay an interest, the bank will take back the asset. So I, I am actually never free. So I need to always work and work and work and grind harder. Mm-hmm. But the moment that I realized that, I started settling down and then I went on to this part with just pure liquid assets with no debt, but growing at even a faster pace than residential property, I'm growing an asset portfolio that has no debt. So forever, I'm actually obliged to nobody. Mm-hmm. And that is true freedom where you have assets, generates a lot of income. You use the income to, the passive income to pay for your, your lifestyle, your living, pay all the bills, support the family. And yeah, and then and, and you're obliged to nobody. And, and I think that's true for you. I like the, the, the quote that debt is the enemy of flexibility comes to mind. Yes, it is. Um, it can be a positive motivator if it's, if it's leveraged in the right way. But to your point, often then you're stuck working to grind it out. And so many farmers make an expansion step and because they're not performing in the top 10%, which is where we sort of really focus to help people arrive to, they never actually recover the debt that they accumulate when they do make that expansion step. Mm. Yeah, and The opportunity cost of that over 20 or 30 years of grinding it out to try and recover the debt maybe if they have that allocated capital to off-farm investments and let that accumulate and compound, maybe over 15 or 20 years, that could have been a far easier and less stressful journey for them. Yeah, for sure. You know, and uh, uh, with all the farmers I've spoken to, not one has ever said to me that farming is a low-risk business. It isn't because everybody knows. You know, you're, every farmer is subject to the, on top of normal business issues which most business entrepreneurs have it's always you know there's that added pressure of you know how's the weather going to be for the next year or the next harvest season Mm. how is the commodity prices going to be so there's all these added pressures on top of farming that farmers just don't have control yeah compared to an accounting firm or a physiotherapy practice or a law firm for example where they're trading time for money and they get paid today for their work they did today um Mm. There's less risk, I think, in those. I think you're right. There's sure. different risks. But you know, I often say that farming is one of the most complex 
and dynamic um, entrepreneurial pursuits that you can choose. And it's yeah. very complex. And then you overlay the family element um, where we're doing business with our families and we're trying to live on farm and, you know, we we sleep and breathe the businesses that we, we live on our businesses. Um, so there's just so many layers of complexity. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I think that com- without all that complexity that you, you speak about, why uh, with all the farmers I've spoken to uh, and many that are already Farm Owners Academy, you know, uh, members and student partner members, they actually say to me that it's one of the best things they've ever done. It's with you guys being able to turn turn around their farm from a non-profiting farm and also I think shifting their mindset from grinding, you know, just grinding really hard over the generations and seeing their their parents do it and then they, they're going to do the same thing, but then changing their mindset to becoming sort of a freedom farmer where yeah. they make it profitable and become more free. Uh, so... Yeah, I think you guys are doing great things to help that in that regards. Thanks, Terry. I appreciate that. And, yeah, we we feel like that we are adding real value to those that lean in to our Platinum Mastermind program and other programs. It's amazing to see the results that they get. Mm. Terry, just on this, let's, let's play this out. Um, Terry, let's explore this a little bit further. Over your years and with Freedom Trader, how many farming families have you worked with? Uh, we worked with close to from that one farm we started six seven years ago to over almost five hundred now. Five hundred Australian farmers. It, it's yes. amazing. And so, when you arrive to them, yeah, what do you see, and kind of where are they stuck that might keep them from getting on with investing? Yeah, I think really, if I look at like percentage wise, I'd probably say one in ten are probably sort of they they're running their farm as it should. And generally, funny enough, they generally have a right because they've it's been with you guys. So they've actually got the right mindset. They've got all the structures in place, the the, the planning, the finance, et cetera, from that. But then the other sort of 90% generally are always time and time again, same issues. So their main thing is that their mindset's always been towards, oh, how do I ensure that I've got succession planning? So it's always that, first of all, first and foremost. Then they always have the issue where they're working too bloody hard on the farm and they know that their, their bodies are breaking and they know they need to pull back, but they can't. And the reason why they can't is the other problem. They've, got, they've sometimes got too much debt because they've either taken on board the family farm, uh, taken more debt to pay their parents out so they can fund their parents' retirement because that succession plan was never done properly. Or they take on board more debt so they can expand for the sake of expanding, like what we said earlier, without thinking about the cost of capital. And then the other thing too is a lot of them, funny enough, up to this day, which I still don't understand why, and they're not, funny enough, they're not with you guys. They don't pay themselves a salary. So they always say, so I, I ask them, so how much of a salary do you guys pay? Uh, pay yourselves. And they always say, oh, we just draw what we need from the farm. Typical response. And I'm like, why? You know, why just draw yourself that minimal salary and yet you've, you're so asset rich, but very cash flow poor and living very poorly, yet you're, you know, because you're thinking about the succession planning. But, you know, it's important that you also live well and then you're more inspired to keep on doing the farming work as well. Uh, the other thing, too, is is I think our time uh, where, again, working too hard, but then finding that they've got no time to do anything else, either time to invest or even time with the family as well. So I think it's really important that, Every farmer out there needs to ensure that they've also got time for the family, time for the for the spouse, the partner, to ensure that the family unit stays intact and they're enjoying that whole process while they're farming. Yeah, so I think they're the the, the typical. 
things that I, I see. And and that that last, I think that the biggest one is is a mindset shift of sort of working hard. Yes, you want to do that, uh, but a lot of them just don't have that mindset of of. Um, I guess it, it's it's not just a mindset. I think they don't have. They've never been in. Um, they've never been exposed to something else. So they don't know what's out, actually out there. So where I see my job is I, I just want to ex- help them expose them to there's this other route as well that you can take if you want to, mm. and then we explore that route. And I show them what's the the potential of that route and not going you know in a big way yet, just slowly tipping their toes in and getting used to that route. And then over time, they see the results and then they, they then expand that, that side of things, the off-farm side as well. It's consistent for us, Terry, totally, that farmers we start with, they're working huge hours. Um, they're tipping all the money that they have back into the business. They're not necessarily paying themselves well, um, burned out, mm. um, not thinking about the cost of capital and allocating imbalance off-farm versus on-farm. But to your point, their mindset isn't, perhaps where it needs to be. They've got the mindset of the technician mm. rather than the mindset of the investor. And I actually think, you know, and speaking to Anna Mears in my last podcast, how much work did she have to do on her mindset as well as her physical um, ability to be able to perform at the highest level? I think farmers are so focused technically and so focused on just doing a better job like Anna Mears was trying to you know, do better cycling, um, yeah. that so many of us as farmers haven't been exposed to the mindset piece, the the entrepreneur mindset, the personal development journey. But there's this real concept that I think we don't necessarily have exposure to that I want to explore with you now around the mindset toward money. Mm. Um, we've all got a relationship with money, but often we inherit um, that relationship that we have with money from our parents and our grandparents. And if left unchecked, it can just be our mindset around money that keeps us from succeeding. Would yeah. you agree? Uh, definitely, for sure. And, and I, I, I was going the sort of the wrong path as well uh, when I grew up because I saw my mum uh, when obviously we came as refugees, had nothing, and uh, she was a single mum because my father part, unluckily passed away uh, on our journey here. And just seeing her have, have two jobs, it was just grinding, working hard, and I think at that time she actually needed to because she was obviously trying to support both uh, herself and, and I. Uh, I was only two or three at the time. And also having to send back money back to the family in Vietnam to support them uh, until they came to uh, and, until they also came to the country almost a decade later. And then I was just always told to um, be, I guess, the typical Asian parent. Uh, work hard. Make sure you do well in school. That's a must. And then if you can... Try to become a lawyer or autometrist or a doctor. That was a, a path. Typical Asian mums always wanted the kids to have because you'll you'll be respected and you'll you'll earn a lot of money. <laughs> that was it. So that was sort of my my journey. But uh, again, then I, I said to mum, I'm actually not interested in being a doctor, et cetera. It's just my not my jam. So I ended up doing a business degree, but I was still in that same mindset of oh, okay, I go to university, I did well, I got up my good grades. They try to become an extinction student, um, and and lucky enough, I did get picked up by the NAB at the time, and I was in, on their, their corporate uh, accelerated program uh, for basically a three three year stint. Uh, that they wanted to accelerate me very fast, going through all the the ranks. So from literally 
going to a branch, being a coming, uh, going learning how to be a teller, uh, then managing the tellers, and then going to lending, business lending, uh, the private lending, etc. And their goal for me was become state manager down a track in sort of five to ten year down track. Yeah, and so and I did that, um, but ended up worked too like farmers worked too bloody hard, and I ended up uh, collapsing one day. Just out of the blue, I just collapsed. And I didn't know why, but then I took it with a grain of salt. I said, ah, it's, it's fine. And I kept on going again. And I'm talking about 80-hour weeks uh, to sort of meet the expectations of management and also, meet, I think, meet my expectations of my mum as well, you know, that I was doing a good job as a son, uh, being able to sort of accelerate in a career, so to speak. Uh, and it wasn't until the last time when I collapsed, which is the fifth time now, that I accidentally collapsed uh, on top of the stairway, just going, heading out to lunch uh, in Sydney, one of the offices. And I didn't realize I actually rolled down the stairs, uh, a flight of stairs, and then I ended up on the pavement. Thank God it actually, the, the doors were open. I ended up on the pavement and I, I hit my head so hard I was concussed. Um, and unfortunately, though, because I wear glasses and at that time it was frameless glasses, it actually cut one of the, the uh, this sort of a slit in top of my eyes. And I actually was bleeding. And someone saw me in, on the pavement bleeding and I was just out. Uh, the next moment I woke up, I was actually in hospital at Randwick. And then um, just drenched in blood, my whole white business shirt. And then I realized maybe something has to change. Like I just can't keep on grinding to the stone like this. Yes, I'm getting good pay, uh, getting recognition, but what for? Yeah. So it was one of those moments, pivotal moments that shifted my thinking to realizing that working hard can't be it. And that was still my early 20s. And I realized that things had to change. I could not see myself keep on going, um, you know, for the next 10 years doing the same thing. Yeah, and then I think it was just that circumstance, that all the circumstances that that forced me to change. And that was a good thing because the moment I started changing, everything shifted. Yeah. So where do you reflect on where you might be if you hadn't changed the mindset around money that perhaps you inherited? You were on that trajectory of being and climbing the corporate ladder and and grinding and and perhaps burnout and fatigue and collapse. Yeah, yeah. How do you see your life playing out if that had been the trajectory and that had been the money mindset that you stayed with? I think if I kept on going, and I actually think that potentially, touch wood, potentially I'd be very sick health-wise. Um, who knows where that would have, would have led to because I was the, the body was already telling me to collapse five times isn't funny. And it was collapsing five times within a sort of a year and a half. So every couple of months I'd collapse and they couldn't find out why. It was just sudden loss of blood pressure, either not uh, eating at the right time because of meetings, et cetera. So just chasing that. And I think one was definitely health. And the other two thing too is uh, not probably not having the, I guess the beautiful re- relationship that I have with my, my wife that we've been able to travel the world and literally every, uh, I try to like step away from the country every six months. And if I was doing that corporate ladder with only a couple of sort of, you know, at the four week annual leave type thing, that would never have happened. Mm. So changing that allowed me to have finally sort of build over time, build the life I want. Uh, was it immediate? No, it wasn't. It, it took hard work to go from sort of that comfort of having a, you know, a set, a set salary and to having almost pretty much nothing. Mm. And then starting from scratch again, it wasn't an easy journey, but I took it anyway because I knew I couldn't keep on going that way. And then from there, yeah, and and you make sort of piv- uh, pivot change along the way. You know, that didn't work. Okay, what else? That didn't work. What else? Uh, so, and then investing ended up being, yeah, being where I 
where I really enjoyed what I was doing. Uh, so it wasn't actually work anymore. It was actually like finding bargains in the, the in the market. Like what, what's gone down in price that's worth a lot more than it should be. And then just going like almost like um, a shopaholic. But rather than going out there and buying, you know, handbags or, or toys, I was actually buying stocks that appreciated the value. And I enjoyed doing that as well. So and then, of course, the side effects was that it built wealth at the same time. Terry, having worked in finance and corporate finance in Sydney as well, I can reflect that it, for me, it would have been 80 hours a week work, maybe three or four weeks holiday a year and hard work every work for a modest balance sheet at the end of the day. Yeah. I kind of, I don't not quite know how many hours a week you work and how many weeks holiday that you enjoy and what your balance sheet looks like, but it is chalk and cheese, isn't it? Compared yeah. to the trajectory you are on versus the freedom and the abundance that you get to celebrate now. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and it wasn't just all about the, the money side. The money, I guess, came as a side effect, but it was sort of the the, the life you uh, one wants to create in the end. Like, mm. are you actually happy about the life that you've created? So, Terry, how do you describe your mindset toward money now? And um, if you could spend some time just reflecting on that, mm. um, and how's that changed? From there. It's it's definitely changed a lot. Uh, money to me, I see it as nothing but a tool to create the life that you want. Uh, whether it's obviously firstly living a good life for yourself, and everybody's different here. I, for myself, I love travel and adventures. I'm not a materialistic guy. I don't go out there and buy flash things. It's it's just not me. But for some other people, it might be, and that, and that's fine. But for me, it's just experiencing life and being able to travel freely and not having to think about budgeting, et cetera. So if I just go, I just go. Uh, whatever it may be, we just go and do it. Um, so that's definitely changed. The other thing too is that I think that the it's important that if you have that the mindset of making the capital that works for you and then the money generates money, so then you're spending only passive income. So that's another mindset shift that someone needs to, if they can, uh, shift because that's changed for me. I used to grind hard and, and then I've had that you know budget for the uh, for the holiday at the end of the year, the annual leave. And then I, that's all I could spend. But I worked hard for that money. I never actually thought about spending the money I made from the money that the money makes It's instead. So that's another big shift as well. And then the other shift too is uh, when I think it's being able to, like I said, as a tool, being able to then use that to support not only the family, but whatever causes you want to support. Uh, whether humanitarian, environmental, wildlife, wherever it may be, you support. You can actually freely support those causes as well without thinking too hard about it. So I think that's that that whole mindset shift that has taken me sort of a quarter of a century to develop as well. Appreciate you sharing that, Terry. Um, I think there's a shift and it does take time to really lock in and um, I love the journey of it is moving from a scarcity mindset toward money, that there's not enough of it and you've just got to work hard and keep your head down. You mentioned that kind of Asian thinking, if you like, <laughs> toward um, career and money. But I think the Aussie mindset and thinking around money is that, you know, it doesn't grow on trees. It's hard to, it's hard to come by. Even the earning of it is outside of our control. So if we don't take risks and we keep our head down and we just crack on, yeah. that at some point good things will come. And yeah. You know, that's one mindset. I know my old man and my mum, and I mean this completely respectfully, inherited our family farm. 
but I feel like they had a very conservative approach towards their attitude toward money and their focus was on not losing the inheritance mm. rather than making meaningful growth decisions and backing themselves in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, and I think perhaps what I'm learning is that you can change your relationship with money. You can, um, yeah, look to use it as that tool to give you what you want in life and to help you achieve what it is that you want. Yes, correct. And and you know you said uh, money doesn't grow in trees. It actually does if you if you sort of plant a, a a real good money tree, and it actually does grow over time if you plant it right. And that that tree that you've planted, that money tree you've planted, will will grow and become stronger and stronger. And it's just going to feed you for life if you just get started and do it early as early as you can. So just on that, we talk with our farmers and first, certainly our first and second generation farmers about this notional goal of getting to a million dollars gross income. If you can have a, a, a business that can generate you a million dollars income, mm. then from there you can start to really get economies of scale. And we measure scale as revenue, not as acres or hectares or area. Mm. That gives you the bandwidth to perhaps employ someone and get some time leverage and you know, you'd start looking to get efficiencies in your enterprises so that you can start driving profits and creating free cash flow. Yeah. So the threshold to go after is, you know, get to your first million dollars in revenue as a baseline revenue for your business. And then you can turn the corner and look towards second base, if you like. Yeah. Yes. What's the first base in investing? Is it something similar or what would it be? It's actually, it's, it's lower. Uh, so I, I want them to go to that million dollars uh, and plus, of course, but to make it uh, achievable and that you to inspire them to keep on going is that the first base is firstly 100 grand because that 100 grand will generate 10 to 20,000. So then the interest is, is there when you get that. And then from 100 to 250, 250,000, and then half a million, then 750, and then a million. So if you're just going sort of reverse engineer again the sort of the the returns uh, with half of being dividends and half of being capital growth and let's say we do say 15 20% that say half a million is now generating what 70 between 70 uh, 75 to 100 grand worth of income and capital growth on half a million and then mm -hmm. if you take to a million now it's between sort of uh, 100 100,000 200,000 per year in income and capital growth. So that's that's a lot and most families really if if that's if that's just even just that's all they have, that is enough to give them a lot of freedom where they don't have to think about money as much as they they already currently are as well because it pays the bills, pays most of the it pays the, the the bills, puts food on the table, and really can take care of the family already on that. So let's just I mean, this becomes a pretty cool roadmap that if I'm if I'm starting out or I'm second generation or third generation in farming, that my first milestones to get to a million dollars revenue in the farm. Yeah. When I get there, I should be paying myself a decent decent wage, maybe employing some people to get some leverage, generating a, a 15 to 25% profit, um, mm -hmm. you know, as an average over 10 years. Some yeah. of that profit then should be able to be invested to then go after that first milestone of $100,000 invested yes. off farm. Yes, and then if we can let that business run, that farm yep. business run and do that consistently, then we've got to go after getting half a million dollars invested off farm. What's really interesting in that is that then 
the dividends of 75 grand, as you talk about, from that half million dollars invested off farm, mm. should at that point that stay in our investment portfolio and be reinvested so that it accumulates? Or is it okay to call on that to replace our wage? I still, I, I, I firmly believe if you can reinvest it and get to the million dollars. If you really need to, yeah, you can call on it. But I think that uh, for me, the I call it the the threshold is exactly the number you've 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 actually t- tipped on, which is the million dollar range. And once you you have that, then now it can be quite free. Where I'd say, still, if you can, don't draw the entire growth that you've got. Draw say half of it, and let half of it still keep on growing as well. Yeah, cracking. And as you say, in a in a pinch here, a drought or a flood or whatever. There would be nothing wrong with taking the dividends from those investments to supporting farm cash flow in in the occasional year where it's needed. Exactly, because that's that's ultimately what this thing is all about as well. It's not just um, you know think about the future lifestyle, but the issues I also come across. I've just almost forgotten is that a lot of the farmers that what they want is you know like you said is the bumpy the bumpy seasons. So sort of to smooth out that bumpy season, and that's what that off-farm portfolio should be providing. It's not just think about the future, but if something goes wrong, that bumpy season is smoothed out because you can draw upon the portfolio, the dividends will come in, and it will smooth out that bumpy season because there is always continued uh, dividend income that always gets paid because that's just their thing. The company has set a barrier, has set a, a target, and they will pay those dividends uh, either you know six months uh, in Australia, Australian shares, every six months they pay that, uh, or in the uh, United States, in America, they pay it every quarter. Mm. So there are farm management deposits, which is a, a sort of a, a structure that helps farmers allocate um, windfall profits and tax effectively have those come back to them in those leaner years. But um, absolutely, um, we should be thinking about our investment for- portfolio being that release valve in those tighter seasons. Yeah. Perry. A lot of people that that are making profits spirits a whole host of their profits into super um, yep. because it's tax effective, a self-managed yep. super fund or other. Mm. Um, what would your comment be about doing that? And it's tax effective perhaps to do it, but then we don't have access to those that money until we retire. Yes. C- compared to not investing in super and wearing the tax and then having that portfolio available to call on in a tight year. Yeah. Do you have a Do you have a view on investing in oh, sure. out of our in our super funds? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, a lot of our farmers, after about a year and a half, two years, they they get confident enough that they trust the uh, the system I've shown them, and they actually set up a self managed super as well. A lot of them actually don't have one. Uh, they've got super, but it's sort of uh, managed by somebody else. So if you've got control over your super, I think super is one of the like you said the the best tax effective vehicle. And that's really all it is, a tax effective vehicle for you to uh, to plan out for your retirement. So that's one thing. But I think it should be a balance of having two sides. One is the super is long-term. And it depends on also you know, where you are in life in terms of age. So if you're going close to retirement, you're in your late 50s, and you've got access in five or six years' time, then by all means, yeah, pump super. Like add more into super. But if you're, you've got no, you know, you're still 20, 30 years away from retirement, being a younger farmer, then uh, yes, still do super for sure. But also at the same time, ensure that you've got off farm as well, then because that's the the lifestyle you want to create. 
because you've, like you said, you can't access that until the next 20, 30 years. Why sort of uh, limit yourself from having a good life until down a track? So have, have um, the flexibility to do both if you can. Pay tax and get on with life. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and find ways to structure it. It doesn't mean that you, you, uh, you invest it, for example, uh, in your own name. You could have an investment bucket company under a corporate structure and yep. then pay much lower tax under that corporate structure as well. So when that, the time comes, it's a good problem. Mm. Speak to your accountant and they'll find ways to actually you know, uh, legally reduce tax but still be able to grow. Um, and I mean, we live in, like we said, right? We live in a lucky country. We pay mm. our taxes. That's why we have this great life that we've got. Uh, yeah. But however, uh, still try to you know, help yourself by minimizing it where you can and then yep. have that structure to invest as well. Yep. No, great comments. I want to come back to um, a comment we made before about farmers not paying themselves what they're worth. If I was to want a farm manager replacing me on our farm, I would need to pay a good, high-quality farm manager with my skill set, probably 140 grand a year, plus a flash house, plus phone, plus a flash ute, plus free meats and a whole lot of other farm benefits. The package being, you know, in the order of 180 to 200 grand. Mm. And to be honest, if I was to go and work off farm um, in an accounting firm or a you know, financial planning firm or, you know, that's about what the going rate would be for a senior member of an off-farm firm. Mm. Yet, and I know you see this as well, Terry, we've spoken a lot about this. We see farmers, as you say, just drawing what they need, which might be 40, 50, 60, 70 grand a year, you know, living in a house that hasn't been repaired, um, driving an old ute. They're yeah. asset rich, but they're not paying themselves first. Mm. You know, would you mind speaking to that? I, I, I'm going to preface this if I can, is that accountants and lawyers and financial planners don't do it. They don't take half a wage and then invest the profits back into their accounting firms. Mm. They pay themselves well and then put pressure on their business to perform. Yeah. I would love to see our farming families paying themselves at least the commercial wage that I've talked about for the risk that and the work that they take on and then putting pressure back on their farm to have it work for yeah. them and de- deliver a profit over and above what a commercial wage would be. Yeah. What's your comment there? For sure. Uh, I think that paying yourself first is is important because one, you then allow yourself to, like we've been talking about, live a, a good proper life without feeling poor, so to speak, even though you're not actually not poor because of the assets you've got. And then two, having flexibility of now there's the cash flow, uh, not just taking care of the family, but at the same time, being able to now also invest off, start start an investment portfolio off farm as well. So that has that, that other dual benefit. And making you know, better decisions because when you're putting pressure on the on the farm by paying yourself a proper wage, then you know, compared to the peers of great farms that work very well, like where are you situated at? And if it's not, then make the necessary changes to make that farm uh, structure it in a way where, or and, and it takes time, of course, but make that change to make that farm become efficient and more profitable. Because if you're just drawing that minimal, you, you may think you're doing well, but you're actually not, may not actually do well. 
when you talk to other pea farmers, which you know have the team and have everything all running, etc., but they never got there in, in one step as well. It took time, mm. and mm. it is important that you at least get started on that step, and then then be able to look back and say, "Damn, I did a good job," because I finally paid myself a proper wage and I could support the family properly as well. So you're getting wealthy. Thinking about the future, that's one thing, but also at the same time, you're not sacrificing the present and not living a life in the present too. Where right. not only you sacrifice for sure, uh, for sure, but don't forget there's a family behind you that is also having to sacrifice that too. You don't want that, so mm. why not have the have the best of both worlds? Yeah, I think we feel good about ourselves when we're providing at a level that we can feel proud of. Oh, for sure. And if, if we're only paying ourselves or drawing from the farm account what we need when we need it, we don't get that feeling. And to yeah. point, we, we can feel poor and make poor decisions um, even though we're actually incredibly fortunate and incredibly wealthy as farmers. Yes, exactly. And then that's all that, the, the same, you know, going back to that scarcity mindset you were talking about, and that's where it sets in. It's because of that. You, know, you feel poor you, you, and you act poor and you have poor decisions, scarcity mm-hmm. mindset. Yep. So, Terry, you and I have spoken about this as well, but that book, Profit First, by he calls himself Mike Motorbike because no one can pronounce his last name. I'm going to have a go. I think it's Mike Michalowicz. Yeah, that's it, Michalowicz, yeah. Now, that's you've it. met Mike um, and um, you know that book. Would you mind just speaking to that, that concept of Profit First and and even your conversations with Mike around just how important that is so that investing can become a priority? Yeah, for sure. Like I, when I spoke to Mike uh, on the stay, he was at a conference. That's why I was there. Uh, actually, it was a dinner, and uh, he had a chat about obviously summarizing the the key point of the, the book, which is profit first. In other words, paying yourself first, which is what we've been talking about. So ensure that you, at a set, say a set week, a set time, you always look at your balance sheet or look at your cash flow, and then. Uh, have a predetermined allocation of, you know, whether it's 10% uh, to yourself, 10, uh, then 10% to, towards tax or 20% towards tax. So, so you're separating your accounts. So on a, it creates that routine. And then afterwards, after you paid yourself first, then you can freely spend uh, whatever you want to. And I actually challenged Mike because I thought, oh, what, he's, what a lot of businesses thought was that they, they pay themselves first and then they go out there and then they, they buy the, you know, the, the toys and do the expansion, et cetera. But when I when I asked him privately, he said, "No, no, no. That's the second step. Is that and and he did it too. It's like he obviously runs a successful business. He pays himself first, but he actually invests that profit to make more money. And he's doing the same thing. Uh, he just didn't want to go too advanced and lose people. So he he actually does live off his his investments as well. So yeah, I'd love it that we reconfigured our budgets and reconfigured our profit and loss in our how we run our accounts." So that we've got income and then we've got drawings at the top. Yeah. And then we've got servicing debt and paying tax. And then we've got our operating expenses after those things. Mm. I think what we do, we we set up our budget and our accounts and the salary is just down the bottom. Whatever's left, we get. Yes. Um, but I think we need to turn that round. And what I love when I read that Profit First book, Terry, and I do absolutely recommend it um, to all of you, is that if we do pay ourselves a commercial wage for what we're worth as high cap- highly capable farm managers, then let's say it's 120 grand plus a house plus a car becomes our package. We've probably been living on 60 or 80 grand a year, but it just means that from today, every month, we can start allocating three or four or five grand a year 
to an investment account, go and do a course, actually not a course like yours. I'm going to say go and do Terry's course, the Freedom Trader course, because it is the best at um, learning how to actually make incredible returns from direct investing in shares. Um, and then you got the ability, all the BS around don't have time, don't have money, um, don't know how disappears and you can start putting three, five, six thousand dollars a month away and start the investment journey. The thing I like about that is that it puts our farms back under pressure to perform, mm. which has us ask better questions back of our business as well. So for me, if there's nothing else to take from this, challenge the mindset that you have around money. Um, the money mindset that you inherited might not be serving you. And as we heard from Terry, you know, make conscious um, steps and learn how to move from a scarcity mindset to one of real abundance. Mm. But then pay yourselves first, pay yourselves a commercial wage, prune the rose bushes so that you've got time and then free cash flow to allocate to investing. And if we do get on with that now, um, three, four, five grand a month, Terry. Mm. How can that? How can that look? And how can that accumulate over time to get us towards those goals of a hundred grand, then two hundred and fifty, then five hundred, then a million? How how long does it take to get? Oh, I mean, I mean, if you're if you're actually starting, and and I always say, you know, you start small. Like I tell all our farmers, because for me myself, my priority is not just helping uh, the farmers make money, but it's the priority is actually reducing risk as well. So reducing risk to basically to as low as to zero to pos as possible. So you start small with uh, with a small amount and get comfortable for the first couple of months. Not about making money; it's actually uh, knowing, uh, understand, understand the process, knowing what you're doing, and then seeing results on a small account. And then naturally, you'll be confident to add more. And if you if the amount you're talking about, Jeremy, like that four, five, six thousand a month, that's quite a fair bit. That's going to really speed up the the whole in the, the whole um, I guess scaling up part. Where that 100 grand will be literally in about a year and a half, you'd be there, just mm. just like that. And, mm. and of course, there's returns plus your your the money you're throwing in as well. So every yep. dollar you think about it, every dollar you, you put in, every five thousand you're putting, you're generating at least sort of that ten percent now. So say what uh, five thousand? It's basically five hundred. Mm. You're getting a five hundred, sort of on a sort of a, yeah literally you're just adding 500 500 500 on top of the, the returns and on top of the money you're putting in so that's going to speed up very very quickly uh so yeah and then that, that seven figure portfolio will actually be in, in in reach within i'd say five years mm. very quickly isn't it amazing compared to trying to accumulate a million dollars in balance sheet wealth through farming this might just be a more efficient way to do it it might be that the farm that we have is big enough and if we really turn our time and attention to what Perry's just described, that we can actually create at least as much balance sheet growth off farm and buy the farm next door really quickly and efficiently with free cash flow in, in 10 or 12 years. I think we've got to think differently about how we go about building our balance sheets as farmers. And hopefully this has been valuable to all of you listening about just thinking about perhaps a different way of achieving what it is that we want to achieve. Yeah, and Jeremy, I was just going to add to what you just said is correct too, because when you when you have that that safety, uh, I guess a safety mindset now, knowing that you're do, you're you're taken care of with a off farm portfolio, so the risk is now gone. Farmers will definitely one film far better 
or not having to be concerned about you know anything from left field, bad commodity prices, bad width, et cetera. So that's gone. Mm. And then on the other hand, too, they now have a very free mind or an abundance mind to, to think about other opportunities, expansion opportunities without fear anymore. So that's going to take that fear away as well. Yeah. I love it. So, Terry, just to give people a sense of that, I've been wanting to ask this question for the whole hour. Sure. How does it feel having a business that profits that allows you to build an investment portfolio? How does it feel to live and buy toys and have holidays on the dividends from the investment portfolio? It's actually amazing because you don't have to think about budgets anymore. You just know that if you want to go, you can go. So all I actually, Jeremy, this is what I do. I've got this world map. And what I do is I've got like little uh, places I've already visited, the countries I've visited, I put a little pin on it. And then when I see like a, a area or a country uh, or a region that I, not many pins on there, I just point my finger, I want to go there. And then that that is it. And then we just go, yep, we'll see what's around that region. What could we do there? We book our air flights. My wife loves the planning side. So then she just fills it up with adventures, doing all crazy, amazing things. And then we just fly off and we just do it. So, and then we come back. And the great thing too is when you do those type of adventures, it's, it's one thing to have a holiday, but when you come back, you feel refreshed. Like this is what you're working for. This is inspiring. So then you actually work harder and you feel happy when you're working too. Mm. And then whenever you can sort of pre-plan your year in advance, knowing that, oh, this is a holiday break you, you want to take, you actually do work harder because, you know, as you know, Jeremy, I don't know about you, but whenever I know there's a holiday coming up, that couple of weeks prior to it, I work bloody hard to get make sure everything's all taken care of so you're very efficient. Mm. So you don't have the Parkinson or, you know, the um, thing where you, you have more time so you, you can sort of take your time. No, you don't because you know you're, you're flying off. So then you become very efficient during those periods. So in, in fact, the more time you take off or the more yeah, sort of holiday, mini holidays you have, which whatever amount it may be, it doesn't matter, then you're working really hard during those times to make sure things are done. So when you have on holidays, you can just enjoy the holiday. Yep. And then you come back, you're refreshed, and you work hard again, um, and you love life. So, Terry, how much more impactful is the reduced amount of time you apply to your business and investing now mm. compared to when you were doing 60 or 80-hour grinds? Oh, far out. Uh, night and day. I don't. 80 hours would be my easily my three weeks now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, most of my time. We're not even on the investing front. It's when we need everything, something systemized, and I'm so used to it. It's almost like second uh, a... Like when you start off, you use checklists and stuff, but then it becomes like a a inherent skill, like almost like riding a bike. It's just you just know what to do when you get on the bike. So when you when I look at something on a screen, I already know whether yes, it's or no. Should I even further uh, do some research? But on average, it's like 20, 30 minutes a day once it's systemized. Mm. So the, the investing time is seriously about two to three hours a week at the most. So that there's hardly any time on the investing. Where I'm actually spending most, most of my time is uh, thinking about how better to you know, improve the process of teaching, of making sure things are more, um, what do you call it, uh, easier to understand. So always improving that side of things. So I'm doing a lot of the, the higher level thinking rather than the actual grind itself now. Thanks for sharing that, Terry, and appreciate yeah, your sort of sharing a bit more of your personal journey and your investing journey with us today. You know, one of the catch cries to the Profitable Farmer podcast and the Farm Owners Academy is to, about working smarter, not harder. 
Yeah. And I hope that this conversation today and for our listeners has kind of challenged us all to think about how we apply that concept of working smarter, not harder to our realities. So if you are working huge hours and you're not paying yourself enough and you're not seeing your family enough and you're not seeing your friends enough and you're not playing golf or water skiing or fishing or doing the things you love enough, then doing the same thing over and again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. Um, Sometimes we've got to slow down, prune those rose bushes, really do that deep reflection on our current reality as Terry did after he collapsed down the stairs as um, as a banker and think critically about how we can make a meaningful shift. And Terry, I think you are such a great example of someone who got off the treadmill, who thought deeply about backing themselves to take an entrepreneur journey, get the skills and the people around you that you need and have now created a freedom lifestyle through investing that other people can be inspired around pursuing. So as I say, thank you so much for sharing your reflections on how you've achieved that. But, But also, again, congratulations on all you do with Freedom Trader in helping others achieve their definition of freedom through off-farm investing. It's it's awesome that we get to track with you, Farm Owners Academy kind of partnering with Freedom Trader to make this happen. But yeah, the results that Greg and Sam and Tracy and our team see in with our members who are investing and learning how to invest with you is, is significant. So thank you, mate, for your time today and thank you for all you're doing to support our community. Now, thank you, Jeremy. Always a, a, a pleasure to be on here, and uh, hopefully, yeah, our, our little uh, chat today does inspire others to, you know, finally, uh, you know, slow down to speed up. Is is that is that thing I always say? And and really, you know, shift that mindset if you if you have never thought about it as well, and and just get started in the end. Mm. I love it, love it, Terry. Thanks for your time, mate. Great to connect, and um, we'll look forward to having you on again in a couple of months. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Talk soon. So often Terry and I talk about inflation rates and interest rates and commodity prices and you know stock prices and how to get rich through investing. It's really nice to actually stop and sit back with Terry and reflect on his entrepreneurial and investment journey and, and to reflect on how his mindset has had to change in order to create the abundance that he now gets to enjoy. As I said, a really good example. Um, we recommend Terry and the Freedom Trader program highly for people wanting to complement their off their on-farm efforts with creating off-farm wealth. Terry has a webinar that we endorse exclusively to our FOA and broader farming community coming up in um, early March. So it'll be at 7.20 for 7.30 on Tuesday, the 5th of March. I'll put details for registering for that webinar in the written intro to this podcast and in the PS to this podcast. So recommend that for any of you, no matter where you're at in your farm journey, um, encourage you to listen to that webinar and consider how you can make a start toward building out your off-farm investment wealth through a partnership or an alliance with um, Terry and the Freedom Trader. Thank you, everyone. Again, take care, speak soon, and uh, look forward to our next session. Bye for now. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.